0: Chose this song because I think it—I think it's encouraging us on some level to let go uh, of the things that have maybe held us back or held us down.
1: to start thinking, um, Mark, brilliantly about what does it mean to perhaps um, let go of things that we hold really dear and perhaps at times too tightly, but what might that be keeping us from, Um, which is sort of our theme for tonight and for the next few weeks is we're calling it from here to there, but looking at our time at reality um, and how wonderful that has been, Um, also challenging and looking at what our time as a community and moving to Calvary United Methodist Church has in store for us. So thanks so much for leading us off. That was great. I'm Molly. I'm one of the pastors. And if you're new to Emmaus Way, I see some new faces. We are a community captivated by the gospel, trying to figure out um, where God is at work and how we might enter into that work and be co-creators with God. We are so glad you're here. And normally, at this point in our service, we have a lovely community song that our kids help lead and participate in. But with the move and all the chaos, beautiful, well, not beautiful, crazy chaos of the move, we uh, forgot to think of a new community song for <laughs> the From Here to There series. Sorry, kids, uh, we totally failed. Um, but if Joel wants to sort of share what they'll be learning about in the back room, that'd be great.
2: Uh, sure, so the other kids, we're, we've been working through the parables um, today we're going to keep working with a uh, revisit the Parable of the Good Shepherd Driven you have any uh, patchwork broken and then Parable of the Hidden Treasure as well as from last few weeks we've been doing the Parable of the Pearl of First Value and um, the Mustard seed. Uh, and then the older kids were, which is Anna I, so wrapping up uh, studying so the Exodus, the typologies of Christ in that story and we've reading like
3: in, in his time and
2: according um, to Judaism, now
1: we're happy to ask Christians, How do we think about this? Very cool. Well, y'all have fun in the back, and we will see you back for communion. Um, we are really excited about all the ways um, our kids' ministry at Emmaus Way will continue to grow at Calvary. One really exciting thing is there is a playground at Calvary, and so I know all these kids will have tons of fun. Okay, Announcements. There are a lot tonight because we are moving. Um, So don't forget, or maybe hear it for the first time, we are moving from reality to Calvary United Methodist Church on August 19th. That is our actual move date. It's a Saturday. It will be in the afternoon into the evening. Um, If you want to help, if you can help in any way for the move, especially day of or packing beforehand, there are these white little cards. If you would fill one out, and put it um, in the metallic bowl, or email Emily McLean or Tim Wooten, who I think is with the kids. They are coordinating logistics for our move. Um, every little bit helps. Um, yeah, one big need, ask that we have is this week, this Wednesday and Thursday, and next Wednesday and Thursday, we just sent out on last week, um, we are going to be painting um, the fellowship hall where we will be having our weekly gathering, kind of the big room. But Calvary is remarkable, and they went to lots of great nonprofits, which means, <laughs> it's, anyway, the evenings. People are there almost every evening of the week except for Thursdays. So we are going to be painting during the day Wednesday and, like, marathon painting Thursday of this week and the following week. If you are good at taping things, if you're good at scraping things, if you're good at painting, even if you aren't, but are willing to learn, um, please let myself or Ben or Emily McLean know. There's also on our website a new tab called We're Moving or The Move where you can sign up electronically to get plugged in to help this move happen. Um, It's gonna be fun, the painting, but right now we have four people (laughs) that have said they can Come and help, and we really need more than four, if possible. That would be great. Also, if you have paint supplies, um, tape, paint brushes, rollers, any paint supplies, ladders, um, connect with myself or Ben or Emily, McLean, um, because we would love. We're trying not to purchase too much, um, and so we will label your stuff and return it. But I did want to tell you probably one of the probably the most exciting thing we found out. Last week from Calvary, not only are we getting to paint, um, but we will be taking our beloved red chairs for some. Yeah, our beloved red chairs. Um, <laughs> and they will be with us and staying out in Calvary space and will be used by all the nonprofits and folks working there. But it means, as Joel says, your lumbar are going to be well-loved, continued to be well-loved in these chairs. Um, we will not have... The less uncomfortable blue chairs. Um, more so uncomfortable blue chairs. more uncomfortable. So there we go. We have these great red chairs. Wanted to make that announcement. Um, and with the move, um, we also are changing our time. And Lara Wooten, our lay leader, is going to talk about that.
4: Yes. Yeah, so most of you all know probably that we have been talking about changing the time from potentially five p.m. to four p.m. And we did a survey and talked about an eclesia. Um, and as a result of that survey, it seemed the majority of folks were interested in meeting earlier, and it would work for a lot of people's schedules. Thankfully, no one was not able to work either time. But as we got to talking about logistics, we figured out because of um, the schedule at Calvary, there's another um, church that meets there in the morning. And because of the time that they let out, we really need... Um, to probably start at 4.30 at the earliest. So, um, and just to give our musicians and staff and everyone the time to set up and get ready um, for the service. So we are gonna be starting at 4.30 on the 20th, which is our first Sunday at Calvary. Um, we'll try to send out lots of emails, social media reminders to folks to kind of to change and um, how you know we've been doing things for a while. But we are hopeful that it will give folks an opportunity if you want to come towards 4 o'clock and socialize and talk with folks and you want to stay afterwards, there's a little bit more time for that too. It's a little bit easier to go out to dinner. Folks want to do that and get kids to bed. You also need to do that. So,
1: yeah, We're excited. 4.30 August 20th. Um, So next week will be our last Sunday in reality at 5 o'clock and then the 20th we'll switch to 4.30 at Calvary. Um, if you are new to i Way, um, there are yellow and green cards on the front table. Yellow card just give us, gives us some information about you. Green card, you can take it and find out more about us. We would love um, to meet for coffee, anybody on staff or anyone in the community, if you would like that. It's also how you can get on our weekly with all these announcements, and you do not have to sign up to help with this move if <laughs> it's your first Sunday. Um, no pressure. Um, but if you want to find out what's going on, With our community. That's a great way to get connected. Another way to get connected is through weekly small groups, um, a women's group, as well as a pub group, which has been telling life narratives of the community. And who is on for Thursday? Tim, do you have? I don't
5: think we have anybody. We've asked
1: a couple people. So we're waiting to hear back. back. But it's been a really beautiful summer, I hear, of sharing your narrative um, with a group and... So if that interests you, they meet at the Fed at 8.15. On Thursdays, I have one more announcement. But our, before I make that one, are there any other announcements? I know that was like a lot.
5: Molly, just I mentioned last week, mm-hmm. bullet points are look for the e- an email going out. We have a uh, uh, meetings with both the mayoral candidates as part of our organizing with Durham CAN. So Mayor Way will have reps... Uh, uh, five to seven of us so we'll, we'll send out if you're interested in meeting with both mayor candidates we'll probably and we have a big delegates assembly in october where you'll you'll get to meet um all the city council folks county commissioners have them all talk about our agenda which is things like affordable housing education criminal justice reform all of those things and so uh, that's a big thing uh, coming up
1: great thanks so much um Durham Can is one of our ministry partners, as well as a religious coalition, and I think there's a vigil coming up this week. When is that? It's
2: not this week, but it's the 17th. Uh, this is for Willard Scott, who was uh, killed
0: by a state highway patrolman up near Duke um, Regional Hospital in February.
2: So we'll be holding a vigil for him alongside his family um, on at 6.30 on Thursday, the 17th.
1: Thursday, the 17th. Great, um, And there was one more announcement. Ben, we had mentioned um, some racial reconciliation training happening Saturday, this Saturday, August 12th, um, at CityWell. Ben and I are headed there. Would love for others to come. There are a few spots left, but if you're interested in attending um, from 9 to 12, it's called Groundwater, um, let us know, and I can get you connected. Okay, so this summer we have had a f- remarkable ministerial intern, Rody who is not leaving us. She is staying on, um, helping with kids and collaborating with staff and just being a part of this community, which we're so thankful for. This is her last official Sunday as a ministerial intern, which means she has survived a summer with me as a supervisor. But we as a staff, um, Rhody has done this, yeah, for like no money and has been remarkable. She's led dialogues and led in worship. Um, She also has updated our website, which you will be seeing in the future, and she's rewriting really brilliant, thoughtful children's curriculum that um, is on a three-year rotation for us with our kids, and it's just remarkable. So the staff, we got you a small token of appreciation um, for all that you've done and what you mean to this community. It's two, I guess it's only fitting from UA staff. It's to one of your favorite bars. A gift card to one of your favorite bars. Um, maybe we take that off the podcast. So Duke Divinity School doesn't hear that. Um, but Rody if you would come and we can just kind of clap and say thank you for all that you've done. Sorry, Mark, that was like, whew, all the announcements, but take it away.
0: Songs tonight are talking about journeys and leaving behind what is behind and straining ahead towards what is ahead. This is a Steve Earle song that I like, uh, talking about journeys. This is Jericho Road.
6: I was walking, walking down the Jericho Road Every mile that I traveled showed And walking down the Jericho Road Yes, kept walking, walking down the Jericho Road The sun started red over the fields of gold And walking down the Jericho Road Joshua will fit the battle, that's how the story goes And the walls came tumbling down, I know But I'm still walking, walking down the Jericho road I met my mother, walking down the Jericho road the Tears in her eyes and her head on low And she's walking down the Jericho road Met my father walking down the Jericho Road. He's back then over from the heavy load. He was walking down the Jericho Road. I said, "Pop, don't you know me? Won't you lay your burden down?" He just shook his head and told me, "Son, you better turn around." And kept on walking, walking down the Jericho Road.
0: Solo. That's not his first solo. I can't remember what the first one was in. I was doing a. I do the podcast for us here, and I was. I was uh, one week. I was doing the podcast. I was like, huh, that's soaring right there, right in between a couple of verses. But I didn't write it down, so I don't remember what song it was. Sorry, buddy. This is a Bruce Springsteen song called "If I Should Fall Behind." about having patience on the journey with one another.
6: We said we'd walk together Leave it come what it may. And there come the twilight should we lose our way. As we walk in Your hands should slip free i wait for you And should I fall behind Wait for me We swore we'd travel Darling side by side each other Stay in the stride But each lover's steps fall So differently Honey, I'm with you If I should fall behind Wait for me Now everyone dreams of lasting and true, but you and I know what this world can do, so let's make our steps clear that the other may see, and i wait for you if I should fall behind. If I should fall behind, wait for me. Yeah, darling, I wait for you. If I should fall behind, wait for me. Yeah, darling, I wait for you. Should I fall behind?
5: Hey, it's good to see everybody here tonight. I'm Tim, one of the pastors as well, and good to meet some new people tonight as well. Um, hey, um, one bullet point commentary that we should all remember for tonight. Rhody, equal awesome. What a great summer. You have been so fantastic. The webpage is splendid. You will be ecstatic to see it. So thank you, Rhody, for a really, really good summer. And. Uh, Don't spend all that money we paid you uh, this summer in one place, right? (laughs) Church on the chief, it's a man's way, right? Uh, Exactly, exactly. Well, that money, spend that, you know, with us, but... The salary stuff, you know, hold on to that really tight. Um, but what a great intern we've had, and not really an intern staff member. So, anyway, hey, I want to give you an opportunity to uh, stand up, greet each other, uh, offer each other a pass the piece, uh, introduce yourself if you're around somebody you don't know. Uh, some really great vegetables arrived uh, at some point, and they're there, and uh, coffee and stuff. So make yourself at home. I'll give us a shout in about three or four minutes, and we will jump into here and there. Well, many thanks to so many people who are working really hard for our move, uh, Molly and Ben and others and others, and it, you know it's going to be, we're excited about this. There's some really wonderful possibilities. Uh, Mark and all of our aesthetic crew will get to kind of make it up as they go along in terms of, uh, you guys know, as some other like almost moves, we did like four or five trial runs uh, so we'll be I'm, I'm really looking forward to the 20th uh, one of the things that, and the music has asked us to think about this is what do you take with you and what do you carry into a new space is really significant and one of the things that we're very um, very sensitive to is how we enter into a new space because we probably could list a uh, huge list of terrible verbs or gerunds of the wrong way to enter a space or a destructive way to enter a new space. And so we're really sensitive in thinking about that. Uh, If you've ever worked in kind of cross-cultural work, there's an old axiom. I don't know if this is still the the, the thing, but this is how, what I learned in my 20s and 30s, is really how you enter something that's new really dictates how you operate in that space for a long time. It's not that you can't change, but your attitude, your perspective, if you go in entitled versus going in open-minded, all of those things, and we probably, all of us could tell story after story after story of people who have entered a, uh, a diverse space, a different culture, a different country, a different ethnicity, any of those things and, and have stories of people who did that amazingly well and people that did it amazingly poorly so we're trying to be really sensitive to this and one of the things that I think is important to us to remember is this idea that perspective matters you know you think about this truth and reality uh, are both fairly elusive unless you're able to look at circumstances and even facts From multiple perspectives. Usually there's not just one way of seeing things or a single angle of looking at things that gives you a complete picture of those things and of course I'm you know, preaching to the choir on that because Emmaus Way has been really fashioned around that mindset, it's why you're sitting in the round, it's why we do a dialogue we've, we've long thought in our 12 years here that the, the way to preach is to let everybody do it rather than have one person impose just their experiences or what they know or their strengths but to really invoke a collaborative operation, same way with our open table, it's this idea that we think that your presence, your voice uh, your interpretation of text, your experiences, how you apply text to your life, all of those things are critical uh, aspects of the process, and no single person can offer a definitive way of seeing things. And that's certainly the case uh, with with um, any type of, not just moves, but uh, an examination of anything that one might even call truth or factual. I'll give you a simple example of this. Um, so... Um, We have had a pub group for 12 years. It's been one of the, it's been my small group for almost all of those 12 years been really, really fun. On Thursday nights, we've moved around to different kind of bars and pubs. But when we first started it, a lot of people had not really heard of a pub group in a church, a church that had people that gathered in the pub. It was just, you know, people did it, but it wasn't that normal. And so for us, we might be able to have this like little little edge, like, hey, we've got a pub group, we're going to pub group, that sort of thing. And and it, and it is a pub group uh, for us sitting around the table. But I always chuckle when I show up at, at, at the federal, and I'm usually the first one there, what do you think the federal calls pub group? Book Book club. (laughs) And it always feels like just a little bit, we are not a book club. Uh, We are a pub group uh, of which they might look around and go, you know, almost and the feds usually pretty crowded, right? Everyone here is having Group. What makes you different is you bring an article in or a book or people tell stories and people drink and cry or whatever. So there's something different going on here than what's happening at the other tables. And, and it's, it's entirely true. Let's think about this point just really briefly. But biblically... Let's just make a quick list. If, if you kind of grew up, not everybody here did, believe me, but if you grew up kind of Sunday schooling, reading the Bible, uh, interpreting biblical texts, let's list a few things that are either events or theologies or moments in history that a change in perspective, and that may be a familial perspective or a change in perspective in ethnicity or historical perspective or a different eyewitness or just a geographical perspective of looking at that event from one part of the world as another would give you an entirely different interpretation. And to really kind of interact with that biblical text, you probably need a lot more perspectives. Can you guys think of a few examples of just things in the Bible that need multiple perspectives? is to deal with? The invasion
3: of the promised
5: land. Yes. So the invasion of the promised land, we were actually in pub group. We read a really good article on this called Canaanites and Cowboys, a kind of a riff off of Cowboys and Indians, the old Western trope of, you know, bold uh, virtuous white people taking the land from people who aren't white, right? That's the kind of the, the Western model. And in many ways, many times we read the, the, um, the Old Testament as kind of a, a cowboys and Indians type of thing from that old Western trope. And that article was like, "Hey, but what if you think about this from the Canaanites? This does not look good. Great example. Somebody else. Something that your whether your family, your geography, an eyewitness—it's just different if you see it different, from a different perspective.
3: Head <laughs> coverings on women.
5: Okay, head coverings on women. Why is that? Well, I mean, yeah. that may be a historical one, right? In, in a sense that that sounds crazy now, but in Greco-Roman culture may not have, right? Yeah.
6: The text- the Syrophoenician
1: woman and Jesus, depending on your location.
5: Like the Syrophoenician woman and when Jesus calls her, right? The dog. Anyway, I don't know. Yeah, when you have um, the Jewish people particularly interacting with their neighbors, there are huge, that dog was actually kind of a theological use of the term dog in the sense that there was a religious judgment and, and this idea of who should be allowed to receive blessing. That's pretty, and, and we're awkward. One of the best ways to kind of figure out what these examples are, what do you read in the Bible and you're going to go, ooh, that's awkward. That's one of them. Anything else? I think about the difference between the North Kingdom and the South Kingdom in Israel. The idea, we still see it in Jesus' life where people were arguing about where's the right place to worship and is uh, who are the real people people of God. Is it the people of Samaria? Is it the northern kingdom? Is it the, those folks? Or is it the, the kind of the, the, the leftover tribes, the tribe of Judah and a few of those folks? So there's plenty of, and, and you know, we look at the, um, the gospels and realize that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John aren't telling the same story. Um, They are telling about similar events, but with really different perspectives. And with any of those perspectives missing, we would miss something about this gospel that we talk about being captivated by. So let's think about this. Emmaus Way is in transition. We're still here. We're not quite there, there being a mile, uh, actually less than a mile as the crow flies, probably like 1.17 miles if you drive it, but less than a mile east from here, Uh, and we're not quite there yet, but we're now actually starting to live in transition. There's less stuff in the room when you come in. We're setting up less. We're kind of organizing ourselves to get ready to go. If you get in the storage area, you would see that there's less in there because we've gotten rid of stuff. We're in between. We're in between here and we're in between there. Um, And as we prepare to move, I thought it would be interesting for us today to consider... Some community stories, and what I mean by that is Durham stories, broader community stories uh, that we think are significant to our life as a faith community, our life as a church, our life in Durham. Um, So what are some stories that are significant to us um, that we might have a different perspective on those stories when we are in a different neighborhood? So here we are in Brightleaf and on the edge of Trinity Park, which is a, a neighborhood. Uh, but what, what specifically? Is there a neighborhood name? Is it Duke Park? That, that it's, so we'll be in Duke Park and about a mile east of Roxborough, and we will be uh, in a different church, a Methodist church. Yeah, so we're in a different type of space. So considering that significance of how we arrive in a new space, um, let's consider a few kind of stories that have shaped the life of Durham and the life of people of faith in Durham, and think about how would you think of those stories differently there than you might think about those stories here. So let's do a bit of that. I'm going to tell two, um, and here's how it's going to go. I want to frame this with the story, but what I'm going to give to you is the opportunity to dialogue about what are the implications of considering that story from another location, another part of town, another geography, potentially another faith community, another space. What might we see about this story that we may not see as clearly in this particular space? Let's start with this. How about the story of race and economic development in Durham? Now, let me say this caveat. This will by no means be a complete story at all. And here's a a white guy telling the story about a town that is not 50% white. So there's already a perspective in this. But let's think a little bit about this story and think about how we might think differently about that story uh, as we encounter new partners and be in a new space. So Durham, a couple interesting things. Durham, by the way, in terms of race, is already a space of shame if you're standing on the banner of whiteness. Why would that be, historically? 147. <laughs> well, we'll get to that one. Go way back to 1865, <laughs> Jay Russ. This was the site of the surrender of the Southern Confederate Army, right? A whole army just decided, we're done fighting, and it happened right here in Durham. So uh, that was something that would have been a mark for Durham for a long time. Um, around 1910, um, Durham was about the size, well 1900, Durham was about 7,000 people. But by 1910, it had grown from 7,000 to 20,000 people. So it had dramatically changed in just 10 years. The population had tripled. Um, it, it resulted in a very large laboring class but actually a small, emerging middle class, which is unique in a war-torn area. The South is very much occupied territory, and the the marks of a war were still very, very present there. So there was this small, emergent middle class. And interestingly, in Durham, there was a a very small class of millionaires who had already popped up in Durham, who were known to kind (laughs) of Live their life like in Europe over the summers and all the great capitals and that sort of thing. In fact, I still think the wealthiest neighborhood in the triangle and the greatest you know, gathering of wealth is still the Hope Valley area uh, rather than any other neighborhood in Charlotte or I mean um, in uh, Chapel Hill or Raleigh. So, town had started to change. Here's an editorial about Durham at that point in time. Everything here is push, everything's on the move. Every citizen is looking out for everything that will make Durham great. Uh, So there was this tony kind of sense of a town on the move, making something happen, being really significant. And these were some of the monikers that people used to describe about Durham. It was considered the Envy of the South, the City of Opportunity, Chicago of the South. I'm not sure that's like a great compliment, but Chicago of the South, Foremost City of the New South, and Type Town, of the future South. So that's old Durham. Let's think about what happened from this town of 7,000 and then 20,000, and how did this kind of economic boom occur in the early part of that century? So here's a few things that happened. You know, one part of the story is the ascent of Washington Duke, and especially his son, J.B. Buck Duke. Uh, Buck Duke's uh, bull, uh, what were they? Duke of Durham cigarettes. Were the rage and they were the rival. Does anybody know the other cigarettes? Uh, John Ruffin Green's Bull Durham. And those cigarettes were the the rage of the U.S. at that point because Union soldiers had plundered the cigarettes and all the tobacco and had taken it all over the U.S. and people went crazy. It was the greatest economic plundering for one single business of any time because it was just advertisement. So there were these two kind of rival cigarette makers and the Duke's were um, were very adamantly into the whole idea of automation, and they acquired. Uh, some would say, if you've seen the um, the the old. Uh, Hollywood film Brightleaf stole the technology to make cigarettes fast and they made cigarettes fast and were able to accumulate a mass wealth in that and it goes on to the story of the the American tobacco conglomerate that was formed largely by the hand of the dukes behind that and so there was an impetus in our town of vast vast largely affluent white wealth about the tobacco industry but there's another part of the story right And that's the story of C.C. Spaulding, who had a parallel ascent in business by eventually the founding of North Carolina Mutual Life, right up the hill from us. And in the 1920s, it was the largest black-owned business in the world. Um, And there was a tremendous affluence of a middle class and an upper class black community in Durham, particularly Parish Street, which we know now as kind of Black Wall Street, was a, an area that was largely black owned and incredibly affluent. So this was indeed, uh, in, at least in the U.S., considered the capital of the black middle class. So Durham, because of that, this middle class and upper class black wealth and this vastly wealthy tobacco wealth was deemed kind of the iconic presentation of racial tolerance and racial cooperation in the South, albeit segregated. It was highly and intensely segregated, but Durham was looked at as the town where if you want to figure out how race could work in, Jim, in the Jim Crow South, Durham is the place to go. So that story of economic development is complicated a little bit, right, by the story of race, Um, because to some degree, the wealth of Durham was not widely distributed, right? It was in some communities and not in others. For example, let me read you this uh, perspective. This is uh, one of our old friends, Richard Nixon, when he was a law student at... uh, when he was a law student at, um, at Duke. He said, we had virtually no contact, whatever, with Negroes. The only time I saw them was when we would go downtown in Durham on occasion late in the day. The tobacco factories would be having a change of shift. Pouring out of the factories like black smoke from a furnace came the thousands of Negroes who worked there. We walked down one side of the street. They walked down one side of the street, and we were on the other. No one really seemed to think of them as individuals. They were just a mass of people living their life as a race completely apart from the rest of us. So to some degree, we hear this whole sense that the wealth of Durham was focused in certain places. And the town, as Jay Russ is pointing out, where a whole range of racial decisions were made uh, was certainly the stage was set by a, a really significant inequality. Um, and what do we have in the South? Those of us who live in the South know that, and if you've been a part of, this is what I research as a student, the moral movement in North Carolina, you hear often narrated what it's like to live in the South in kind of a post-Civil Rights Act and a post-Voting Rights Act, which meant that overt racism in the South, in some ways, were out. Have you ever heard uh, Lee Atwater kind of crafting the kind of Southern strategy for Republicans? He said, you can't use these words anymore. You can't talk about segregation. You can't use the N-word. You can't act like you're a racist. Here's what you do. You talk about things that are racially motivated without using racial terms. So overt racism is translated into a much more brutal, in some ways, kind of invisible racism. And so as a result, because no one's talking about race, and especially in a town like this that's not a white city dominant, race really isn't a factor in the decisions we make. It's something that surely was a thing of the past. As Jay Russ points out, we can see living here, there's lots of great decisions or decisions that have been made that have dramatically impacted the life of Durham. For example, the putting of 147 through a middle-class black community that severed northeast-central Durham from the community around Central. Um, So in many ways, and if you were here in Durham 10, 15, 20 years ago, you hear it now, but you used to hear it all the time in reference to Um, this side of town, and certainly Duke, would be considered the plantation culture. And it was not uncommon to hear somebody say, well, I've I've been working on the plantation for a few years, and they meant Duke University or Duke Hospital. So we still live in a community that has a radically framed racism and a long history of racism, even though this is ironically the town that was deemed as the kind of shining star Of the New South. So let me throw it to you now. Here we are moving one block east of Roxborough, which was in many ways historically the black-white dividing line in, in Durham. So moving there and thinking about what economic boom, and you can think about economic boom, think about what you see looking out that door or looking out that door if you ever used it. What, what has economic, the economic explosion, the downtown revitalization of Durham meant for this community as compared to what it might mean for the community that we've been moving into? And what lessons are there for us in those different perspectives. Does that make sense? What different perspective might we have in that space and what lessons might we draw as a community? Let me throw that to you.
2: Yeah. It seems like this location right here is about 10 or 15 years ahead as far as the gentrification goes. And I kind of wonder, like, I wasn't around when, when Emmaus Way started meeting here. Like, mm-hmm. was this location then, like, that location is but, it, but it, like, it, I, don't, I also, feel like, mm-hmm. I think it's only a matter of time for, like, we're, we're what, like, four blocks from Cocoa Cinnamon? Mm-hmm. Something like that. I mean, like, it's only a matter of time for before that close to Cocoa Cinnamon is fully gentrified. Sure. Sure. I've been thinking a lot about how
1: this location feels very... Um, there is Trinity Park, right? Like, we're right by Trinity Park, but I think more of Brightleaf and sort of commercial and, like, restaurants and business. Like, we are closer to business than we are—that's our neighborhood, not necessarily Trinity Park. But at Calvary, the church is surrounded by homes, um, and a house right next storage is sold for $450,000. So what does it mean to be neighbor, like literal neighbor, a church in the middle of all these houses— as it is gentrifying and um and yet, yeah, like how are you how is the church yeah like being in that space how are we neighbor occupying that space um mm-hmm. as kind of what joel like it seems to be starting to catch up with Durham. maybe not with business but definitely with the economics right kind of the white white folks moving in and the homes are a lot more
5: than they used to be or, has, yeah. or as our friends at monument monument of faith say uh they were doing a, a like a prayer walk or something this is a black church that we do a lot of organizing with on the south side right kind of near near the Fayette place uh a property that we just acquired organizing-wise. And they said, you know, we were out walking and praying one time and we saw a really nice white lady with a dog who waved at us and was excited to see us. And it was really nice, right? But they thought, oh, this is the sign of the apocalypse for us. <laughs> nice white lady with a dog means and a comfortable nice white lady with a dog, not clutching her purse. And they're like, oh my gosh, it's all changing right out from under us, right? It's like Ruth's
1: just, I don't a video about how Whole Foods is now on 125th Street in Harlem. And they were interviewing different people today. I watched it. You should Google it. But it's the same. The people that have been in Harlem are like, well, I guess it's time for us to leave. And this white man is videoed like, you know, I think that, like, they're my friends. I walk my dog. People wave at me. And yet, hearing this narrative of, we now can't afford, they're saying we're no longer a food desert, but we can't afford the sweet potatoes that they're selling inside the store. So
5: Molly makes a really good point. Here, our neighborhood has been more businesses. Durham School of the Arts, pubs, restaurants. And so when there's a new great place coming in because the economic boom of Durham supports it, we kind of go, yay, this is great. It's great for us. We can have staff meeting in another location, right? But now, and I want to pride you on this, what would it mean to now live in a gentrifying neighborhood? a $450,000 house next door, but still a neighborhood where there's a a community meal for folks who might be hungry. That's a pretty intense juxtaposition. What might that mean for us, stepping into that space?
2: Um, I think, and this is just coming from my experience living um, past that even further, but in a neighborhood that's gentrifying, um, is it's going to be, I think, learning who the community stakeholders are and those, especially those stakeholders who have been in the community, um, who are from that community, not the people that have recently moved in, um, and learning what they're doing in the neighborhood, which is kind of our model, anyways. Like, you know, we didn't start our own prison ministry, or you know, or for people for you know dealing with issues of violence, like we jumped on board with the religious coalition. And so I think, you know, getting to know the people on the ground, um, you know, we don't need to go in and start our own community. We Mm -hmm. But how can we support those that are already doing that um, and really by deeply Mm -hmm. listening to them um, and seeing what their needs are and making sure that we're not assuming what the needs of the community are?
5: Brett, it it reminds me, you say that very well, that um, it's easy to forget that we actually met for three months in your neighborhood a long time ago. Uh, I can't even remember if it was before or after the Jakes' house. After. After and it was interesting that 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 12 years ago, East Durham Driver Street and um, Holloway was a place that some people wouldn't go, uh, and so it it defined our community in certain ways. It also has helped shape that language of of at least trying to avoid a colonial posture of
2: "Hey, we're here, let's
5: do some stuff" as compared to uh, an attitude of "What is being done here? What is the unique wealth?" knowledge and insights of this community that we should perhaps be aligned with. So that's a well-said a well thing. So it's different, right? Let me tell you another story. Uh, this one focuses more on our host. Um, and we've had this incredibly wonderful relationship with Reality Ministries who have been, I mean, they have been committed to us being here in terms of the rent that we've paid and all of these things. They, they have been for Emmaus Way Um, But let's think a little bit about social issues in terms of where we're going. Um, One story that jumps immediately to mind is LGBTQ inclusion. Um, Here's a little bit of our history uh, as a community and as it relates specifically to that issue is to some degree the original 8 to 10 people, I don't know who those were, but whoever the first handful of people at Emmaus Way were people coming from an evangelical church Um, And if you had to identify the the two kind of theological strains of Emmaus Way 10, 11, 12 years ago, it would have been evangelicals and post-evangelicals, people who were formerly evangelicals but were traveling to somewhere else. But those who had come from a previous church together were in a church that not only did not welcome LGBTQ people but didn't have women as pastors or elders, So um, we're traveling into a space coming from somewhere because you're always coming from somewhere and you're always going to somewhere. So that was kind of the original group of people, we were also rooted in the, some of you don't even know what this is, the emergent movement or the emergent church movement, which was a rather significant reformation that, of, of church life in America that began first and foremost in evangelicalism. It spread pretty quickly to the mainline, but it started, its roots were evangelical. And so back in that day, for people like that, um, a friend of mine, Brian McLaren, who had a really high profile, I remember him saying circa 19 or 2005, "Why can we not?" And it's interesting. Uh, Brian's had a, a, a couple kids come out uh, since then, but he said, "You know, why can't we just have a moratorium uh, in terms of this type of people that are journeying out of something uh, to, to to really study and be be neighbors, be." inclusive, uh, not to, in some ways, be experts on anything for five years before people are writing their blogs and their podcasts and all that stuff about what they think about this. So that was a really distinct way of handling that. And for a church like ours that was dialogue-based, that was fairly easy, right? Because every opinion is welcome. You, you are here and you're affecting our dialogue. You're, that's, that's significant to us. So that was a posture that was easy for us. But interestingly, from the very get-go, we practiced an open posture, an, an open and affirming and receptive posture to, to LGBTQ people. But what we did notice was that occasionally when, when people who identified queer or, or non-gender binary or, uh, or gay or lesbian would come in, they might say, am I welcome here? And we thought a lot about that. We said, you know, other people don't do that. They don't come in and say, "Am I welcome here?" Uh, it, it was a, a different thing, and so part of our journey as a church, and some wonderful leaders, kind of led us in this. Is we moved into a, a space where we said maybe we we need to be more than just open and affirming and receptive, but we need to be vocal and saying this is kind of who we are so as a church we moved to putting our name on things like org and a whole range of things because we wanted to be kind of publicly vocal on that while also in no way um, ever which we wouldn't do is to demand unanimity on anything there, there are obviously any political issue or whatever you might have a people individually, but we felt like we needed to make some kind of corporate decisions, and our lead team did that for us. Now, we didn't do that without casualties. There were casualties along the way. Here's the point of that story. We were journeying from one space to another space, and that space as a community, when we started 12, 13 years ago, had some restrictions to hospitality, that we felt so uncomfortable with them that we never practiced them. We certainly had, we were egalitarian from the start, but we're, we, there were still some restrictions that we weren't comfortable with, but we were not overt in where we, we stood on that. Now, here we're moving to, uh, and I don't know this story very well, but we're moving to a church that was Durham's oldest open and affirming congregation. Um, now, I may ask Ben and Miley and others to frame this, but Here's the question is what might we learn from being in that new space and how might we see certain social issues differently uh, or our own space in those social issues differently is what I, I think I'm asking from there to here. Molly, you want to get to
1: um, Calvary, they, for the first... United Methodist congregation that was open in a firm in North Carolina, and they officially became reconciling in 2002. But since 19, whenever we were meeting with trustees, um, a congregant was there, and he was attending another Methodist church in town, and just said even since 1981, Calvary has been known to be a place where all are welcome, and he and his husband, um, the congregation where they were, he said, I sang in the choir, and Ben helped me. Like, we were welcomed but we weren't allowed to like be basically right they were and so they um went to calvary so since the early 80s um this congregation has been a church for all people um and so whenever yeah a lot of churches are still wrestling um and are trying to catch up and yeah, or hurting a lot of people in the process, but that we're moving to a space where, yeah, in 2000, you know, when we were having this conversation and really praying about it and thinking different things, they were, they've been doing it for almost, for over 30 years. They, they've been a congregation for all, so, and they're, I mean, they're old, like, like it's like, you know, it's an aging, co- I mean, yeah, it's a bunch of 60, 70, 80 year olds that are opening up their church to all people, which. Um,
5: so add that dynamic, right? they're, they're old and mean, they're smaller than us.
7: I hope I didn't hear it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, uh,
1: they aren't, you know, they aren't the hip church, right? They are a mainline yeah. Methodist church that's a place for
3: all people. So.
5: so what might we learn from that dynamic, not just about social issues, but about who we are?
3: Well, Tim, I think it's worth being honest about how things have changed in this church. Um, because there was, in my opinion, a lot more space for an honest conversation that's been shut down. And you know, I'm leaving. I know where I'm travelling to. We won't be living in there. My visa's coming to an end. But I do have a strong sense that the space for people like me to be faithful to what we believe the scriptures telling us has been reduced. Um, and maybe that has to happen for this church. But I think you need to be honest: it's being narrowed.
5: Narrator. Narrated by whom? Because we're kind of in a circumstance where the the point of the question is that there will be multiple narrators in that.
3: Yeah, and I'm saying people like me, Mm -hmm. when I came to this church, there was a view that people like me could say, we believe the Bible teaches this and this and this. Mm -hmm. And the answer to us was, good, you believe that. Uh, People believe something different. Mm -hmm. We will model what good dialogue looks like. We will model that people can hold different views without anybody being accused of being, for instance, a bigot. That's no longer true. In this, in the context of where we are now, um, I am accused of being a bigot. I am perceived as being someone who isn't fully Christian. It's not possible for someone who is fully Christian to believe what I believe. And so that's problematic for me. Because that's not what we said. Now, maybe you're right. Maybe it's been a journey, and it's no longer possible for this church collectively for someone to, to be able to believe what I would find. But let's be honest about that history then. Mm.
5: So, Andrew and I know each other a long time. We've had lots of long conversations, and I'm really comfortable saying this. I disagree with that. Um, because I think the real shift. That I see it. so, And this is actually the whole point of the conversation is the idea of no story can be told as a definitive, in and out, one thing to another. Um, What I would say probably is certainly the consensus missional posture, and the majority has changed. But one of the things that is Emmaus Way, we're utterly committed to, and this is one of the greatest areas of growth for us, has been people who are secular, people who who are not theists, who are part of our community. And we're deeply excited about that, and we're deeply excited about their voices. Now, one of the things that they would recognize is that we as a, a... Distinctly Christian community and narrate scriptures and interpret scriptures and are part of a Christian legacy and all of those things. So to me, and again, you and I should talk more about this because one of the things that we're utterly committed to is not in any way stifling voice, but certainly the majoritarian or the the, the dominant posture on lots of things change. Like for example, um, when we were starting a nursery. <laughs> Twelve years ago we didn 't have anybody who had any kids. We had a bunch of people who were like twenty five years old going, "What is this small thing you just gave me uh, and, and in some ways, that was you know a whole different thing. We are a community of babies and children, and so we have to factor that in um, by no way would i would I perceive and again, this is my disagreement would be that we 've in any way had people who are not parents have ask that their voice not weigh into things but certainly the axis has changed so i I totally respect your opinion on that andrew and one of the things i want to say on this is besides the social issue angle is here's one of the things i think is really challenging for a church like ours even though we're not well you are i'm not um we're we're not a cool church, (laughs) but we are a church that has been studied, right? We have had how many ethnographies written about us? At least three or four. We had a stage like three or four years where we had almost every third week, someone in church groups and leaders and people studying us and writing about us. And there would be, it would be easy for us to say We've really figured some stuff out. If you really want to know how it is to do church and be church in in Durham, North Carolina, or even more, you should ask us, right? Isn't that true? No. You know, and, and in terms of LGBTQ inclusion and other issues, we've been behind the curve on that, Right? I mean, we've been egalitarian from the very get-go. There's never been a barrier to anything in terms of gender, but Molly I think did like our first baptism 2 or 3 years ago as a female co-pastor. This was said at pub group uh, Thursday night. Somebody people were talking about how pub group has changed, our community has changed, and somebody made the point, "You know what's different about pub group is it's much more feminine." Right. It, it, I mean, and, and then somebody said, you know, our church is much more feminine. There is much more of there. And then somebody said, you know, there was a couple of weeks the last two or three weeks ago where no male voice led anything from the stool to the, you know, the whole nine yards. It was entirely female led. So all to say, Andrew, uh, you and I would have a different perspective on, on that transition But we have been a community that has gone from one space to another. And as we move into this space, it's a reminder that we have probably turned over some ground in some spaces. But there are other spaces where we've not turned over ground. We've not been the cutting edge. We've not been the the alpha. We've not been the first one to see it. We've not been the first one to interpret that. And so that says to me one of the most significant things that we need to do is enter this new space with humility now in terms of my life as part of the emergent movement i could tell you and i won't and i'm way over time um, i can tell you a million stories of small churches or hip churches or emerging churches moving into spaces of older dying churches with the idea these people will be gone in 10 years anyway we are here. We got some changes to be made. We want to do some stuff. We want to show you how to do church. And in some ways, reflection on social issues, um, many of them, gender, LGBTQ, inclusion, others reminds us we have a lot to learn, and that we've not arrived. and we're always struggling to arrive, and we need to arrive in a certain posture. I thought I would close this portion and turn it over to Mark with a simple prayer. You guys know this is from one of my favorite um, prayer books, Conversations with God, Two Centuries of Prayers by African Americans. And particularly, and we're not all white, but particularly for white people like myself, there's a tendency, not a tendency, there's a intense multi-century training to see Christianity as a white enterprise and this is then the power of the black church standing outside that dominant paradigm and able to see things that those who are driving things often do not see and so this prayer book has been really meaningful to me and, and it is a reminder that even moving east of Roxborough for us we're, we're in a, a different a different narrative in Durham but this is Charles Eric Lincolns a prayer for love and if anything describes kind of how we need to operate as a community this might be it. He's a uh, Duke uh, was a Duke Divinity Professor until he died and was considered the the most uh, significant historian of the black church. Here's a prayer. Lord let me love. Let loving be the symbol of grace that warms my heart. Of grace that warms my heart. And let me find thy loving hand to steal me, to steal me when I tremble. At thy command to love all humankind, Lord, let me love, though love may be the losing of every earthly treasure I possess. Lord, make thy love the pattern of my choosing, and let thy will dictate my happiness. I have no wish to wield the sword of power. I want no man to leap, to leap at my command. Nor let my critics... Feel constrained to cower. Feel constrained to cower. I add, and if we have erred and sinned in that way, we need to always think about that. For fear of some reprisal at my hand, Lord, teach me mercy. Let me be the winner of every person's respect and simple love. For I have known thy mercy, though a sinner, whenever I have sought thy peace above. Lord, let me love the lowly and the humble, forgetting not the mighty, the mighty and the strong. And give me peace to love those who may stumble, to love those who may stumble. Nor let me seek to be judge of right or wrong. Lord, let my parish be the world unbounded. Let love of race and clan be at end. Let every hateful doctrine, doctrine be confounded that interdicts the love of friend for friend. Amen. Thanks, Mark, and sorry, Mark.
0: A song by Sean Colvin, who's one of my favorite songwriters. Maybe of all time. She's really, she's I really love her, her writing. Uh, this is a song that that I think speaks to uh, the journey of where we come from uh, and how we how we take those parts of ourselves and move forward with our lives. This is a cinnamon o. Oh, and I wanted to say thanks to all our musicians playing tonight. Dan Hall's back with us on drums. Great to have Dan. Lydia Kenton singing vocals again. Thank you, Lydia. Always fun. Casey Toll on bass, which is like, I think Casey played every week for like three years or something. But it's been a little while, so thanks for coming back, Casey. And Charles Cleaver on keys tonight. This is my first chance to play with Charles. This has been a lot of fun. This is cinnamon room.
7: feel better Oh Hot summer breeze The tops of the trees Reaching forever So you take all the things that you felt and never did show With a picture of your head of somebody that you never did know Put them all in a box and you leave them down
0: solution tonight uh, is a song by Bob Dylan, Times They Are Changing. Because sometimes, while well, change, change is hard, but but oftentimes change is a good thing. Or at least we have to learn how to embrace the things that are good about new experiences, even when they're uncomfortable. And this is a song that reminds me that change can be a great thing.
6: gather around people wherever you roam and admit that the waters around you have grown and accepted that soon you'll be drenched to the bone if your time to you is worth saving then you better start swimming in your single like a storm for the times they are changing Come writers and critics Who prophesize with your pen oh, And keep your eyes wide The chance won't come again and don't speak too soon for the wheels still then spin And there's no telling who That it's thinking. you your a command.
8: tonight. Um, I think that um, this, um, is it a mini-series? Is that what we're calling it? Is it a two-week mini-series? I I think this was really helpful. Um, I think Tim went really big picture, and I have been much more introspective this week. Um, And using here and there as a um, hermeneutic is not the right word, a lens, I guess, um, through which to think about my summer with you all and to think about um, this time of transition in my own life and um, I think it has proven to be a really helpful lens um, in preaching classes, for example, that I've taken at Duke. Um, We often would would try to find um, stories in the Bible where, and read them from the perspective of a character that we might not normally do, so like Ruth and Naomi, but we would read that story from the perspective of Orpa, um, and I think that was sort of what you were getting at, right, Tim, that, uh, that we can view things from here, but that it, the story looks really different when we view it from somewhere over there. Um, and so this summer has come with a few transitions for me, um, I spent the summer saying goodbye to some really dear friends who just moved quite far away, um, so closing an old chapter and, um... I just celebrated my birthday this weekend, and so that is starting a new chapter, and um, I've also really come to love and admire you all and um, admire your minds and your table and your mission in Durham, and um, I am sad to leave in my capacity as an intern, but really grateful and happy that I'll get to stay on working with the kids this next year. Um, So I guess all of that is to say that I am also working on what it means to live, sort of saying goodbye to here and not quite being where, where you're going, the there. Um, and the, what that brings, the, the complicated sensation of the now and the not yet um, and the work and the joy of the in-between. Um, and so, like we've mentioned at the beginning of the dialogue, I've been uh, finding a lot of comfort and, and hope, really, um, in the ways that God shows us who God is from multiple perspectives and multiple vantage points that God um, takes the here and the there and blesses them both. Um, I found a poem by um, Reverend Lisa Ann Moss de Grenia that articulates some of the discomfort and the tension of here and there, and it's called Now and Not Yet. And she writes, God of now and not yet, we race ahead of you Wanting answers now, results now, actions now. We see you lagging behind, slow in coming. Hosanna, we say, save now. God is now and not yet. We struggle to keep up. You appear, but we are slow to believe, slow to understand, slow to change, slow to act. You race ahead, pioneering into unfamiliar places, but be still so we can keep you caged. God of now and not yet, your kingdom draws near and stretches into forever. Steady our steps till the rhythm of our faith keeps pace with your faithfulness. And so this poem teaches me, as I've been sort of praying through it this week, that um, that God makes room for the more complicated feelings um, and acknowledges when joy feels imperfect. Um, and I think it's worth acknowledging that God asks us to do a hard thing, right, which is live in the in-between, live into a promise that is not quite fulfilled, but certainly kept. Um, God asks us to go on living in a world um, without God's physical self, right, without Jesus, um, and yet commands us to go on living with each other, um, and that is such Hard and beautiful thing when we get down to it that um, like Durham itself like Emmaus Way um, we are a work in progress when it comes to loving others um, and loving the people that God has asked us to live beside Um, but I think the best part of all of that is is that in the meantime God said have a meal together Um, in the complicated in between sit down together for a meal and I'll show up too um, that might, in fact, I think it might be in the only consistent part of this sort of untidy middle section, right? That this is the, the thing that cuts across time and geographical location, um, the table. Uh, so I've been reading Isaiah a bit this summer, and Isaiah 25.6 struck me as I was preparing for this, um, and it, the author writes, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines stained clear. Um, There is a little bit of speculation about perhaps what Isaiah is getting at here. Is he talking about when the Jewish people will be released from captivity? Is he talking about when Jesus will come? Or is he talking about something more eschatological, the end times, the, the kingdom come. Um, but regardless of which interpretation you, you would like to, to think about, um, Isaiah is talking about how wonderful it will be um, when a promise is finally fulfilled. And also, in the meantime, what are we supposed to do to keep going forward? And it makes me really, really happy that at least a small part of God's ultimate promise, God's kingdom, is about a table— a feast with really good wine. I like that the author says, good wine twice. And I know that eschatology is really complicated, and I don't understand all of it, Um, but I do understand and revel in the fact that sometimes God just wants a dinner party, and God, uh, and that our our invitation to the dinner party will carry us through this middle section, sustain us until here becomes there, uh, and weave us back together again. So let us come to the table, uh, the place where we know God and know each other most fully and most hospitably. In Adamaeus' way, we serve each other and we say the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, or if you prefer, God's love for you um, and God's peace for you. Let us come.